It's Food Freedom Coach and host of the Dear Body Podcast, Jesse Jean. We both overcame decade-long struggles with body image, and now she's a coach, and she helps other people overcome binge eating. I want to talk about finally finding self-love. Here's my episode with Jesse Jean. Dear Body Podcast, like mm-hmm. I've been following you. Um, you're a food freedom coach. We have this in common that we both struggled with body image, food shame, you for a decade, me for two, mm, <laughs> literally mm. 20 years. And mm. I kind of wanted to start there with that struggle, like talk sure. about, cause I'm assuming that's inspired what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, my struggle started when I was in, um, high school and, uh, at the time I didn't really know exactly what I was going through. I just knew that I felt a lot of shame around food and my behaviors with food and a lot of shame around my body. My body was changing. I was a growing girl. I was in gymnastics and cheerleading, very body focused, uh, sports. And, um, I was naturally petite growing up. And as my body started to change, uh, as I grew up, um, I didn't like what was happening and I started to, uh, yeah, just feel ashamed. And so I started to try and control my food. And I was also very much so a perfectionist. And, um, that kind of bled into every single area of my life. And I started to sleep, um, maybe four to maybe five hours a night from the time I was a freshman in high school, because I was just committing myself to anything and everything I could possibly plug into, uh, whether it was advanced academics, athletics, uh, volunteering, student government, anything and everything I could be plugged into, I was plugging myself into and, um, as you know, uh, uh, nobody can function off of four night, four hours a night, especially no. not a growing child. And, yeah. um, but I forced myself to, I forced myself to do all the things. And I, I set this standard for myself of perfection and it was really toxic and it was exhausting. And, um, since I wasn't getting enough sleep, I was turning to food and, uh, food became my fuel. And then I noticed my body changing and I felt guilt and shame around that. And so I started to try and restrict my food intake and it just became a spiral of binging and restricting binging and restricting. But at the time I didn't know that that was, I didn't know I was, um, uh, suffering from disordered eating. I, I didn't have words to identify what was going on. I was just embarrassed. And nobody and talked I, about it then. Like no. if, if somebody had an eating disorder, you didn't know, like it's finally talked about now. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you didn't think you just thought that's what everybody does. You restrict to try to lose Mm -hmm. weight and it lasts for a little bit. (laughs) Then you go on a binge. Everything that you're saying is the same. Um, Mm -hmm. I have to ask if you're firstborn. Mm, I'm an only child that it's, it has to be a thing, Jesse, everything Mm. you just described, the obsession driving you like into every field of your life. Like I hold myself to a standard that is unachievable. No one could ever hit it. So I'm constantly feeling like disappointed. And I just have this obsessive personality and I'm the oldest of four girls and none of my sisters struggled with body image, eating disorders, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you like, aside from birth order, which I'm sure is a thing and being like a firstborn perfectionist, Mm -hmm. do you think you have to be predisposed So like we grew up in the same house, me and my sisters, and my mom was always on diets. Like I said, nothing with my sisters. It only affected me. We were in the same household. You know, Mm -hmm. it's your culture and your society around you. But since I was the only one who suffered, do you have to be predisposed to an eating disorder to be able to, for it to like take, because it didn't Mm -hmm. affect any of my sisters, just me. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of different reasons why somebody will find themselves in a disordered, uh, relationship with food. And I think, you know, there, there certainly can be, um, uh, you know, a lot of it is environmental conditioning, but we all choose to cope in different ways. So if your sisters didn't turn to food or to body obsession as a means of coping, they probably had other, um, resources available to them, other tools available to them to cope and to navigate. And so, um, you know, a lot of it is environmental conditioning. Of course there can be, you know, this, this, uh, 
sometimes it's a genetic component, which will make somebody more likely to, um, you know, to fall into the traps of certain, uh, struggles and challenges. Um, but I think, you know, it's, there's so many different ways that this can take root and it's hard to pinpoint or identify exactly what it is. A lot of it is environmental conditioning, but you know, there's, there's so many different ways that we cope and that we can cope in healthy ways and also unhealthy ways. So, you know, the reason I turned to food, um, was because I was terrified of turning to other things because in my life, I saw people in my family, I saw people struggle with alcoholism and drug addiction. And, you know, there was a lot of other reasons why food became my coping mechanism. Um, so yeah, I see all the time, uh, individuals who grow up in the same situation and take two very different paths. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of that is just the, uh, the messages that we receive and also the tools that we, we, we receive, and we all need, uh, need something to lean on need. We need coping strategies and perhaps your sisters, younger sisters, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perhaps they, um, were able to witness, um, maybe even if it wasn't consciously, maybe subconsciously, some of the struggles that your mom or you were going through and that repelled them from turning to those means for coping. I watched my mom struggle with alcoholism. So that repelled me from the idea of, mm-hmm. of turning to drinking because I didn't want that for myself. Um, Um, and like I said, there could be other coping mechanisms that they've turned to whether healthy or unhealthy, um, you know, who's to say it was like, they didn't even, they just didn't stress it. It was Mm -hmm. like, I was obsessive. Soccer was my thing. I would train relentlessly obsessively all year long. And I mean, they just didn't, they all played soccer. All three of them, all three of my younger sisters all got division one soccer scholarships. No one obsessed. Mm -hmm. And I I've always attributed it to being like the firstborn. We have the same mm-hmm. personality, but it's funny. Like when you said it happened in high school, it has to be so common that girls, like I started my period late. So I come in to high school, super thin. Cause I'm 14 mm-hmm. and I start on varsity and everything's going great. And then I get my period at 15. And like you said, my body changed. And mm-hmm. I was like, this can't, this doesn't work. Like I can't gain weight, everything, mm-hmm. my value and my identity was soccer and I couldn't gain weight. Like thin to me was like better for soccer, like fit. That meant thin meant in shape and better for soccer. So mine in high school was anorexia. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I went through a point where I wouldn't eat carrots because it was a starchy carbohydrate, like Mm -hmm. a vegetable was off limits. And -hmm. I would come home and take naps so that I, it was time that I wasn't eating. Mm -hmm. And it went on most of my high school career. I think my junior year, that's when a coach was like, you are getting so skinny. Your crosses aren't strong anymore. And that like kind of triggered something. I was like, Oh, it's affecting soccer. So I'm going to eat. And then I found exercise bulimia where I would just jot down everything. I ate literally every single calorie, then go on an elliptical machine, work Mm -hmm. that off because it is a mental illness. And I believe that I was canceling it out. You're not, Mm -hmm. it doesn't work that way, but Mm -mm. I got stuck in that. And I just, it turned into actual bulimia in college. Like we can get into all of it. Like nothing was ever, I I just was never satisfied. Mm -hmm. And I was so obsessive and ended up going to college and quitting in the middle of my sophomore season. And I was the one that worked the hardest and almost to a, like a negative degree. All my sisters had great careers, like, and just didn't stress things like I did and Mm -hmm. enjoyed their life. Like, I don't even I'm trying to think when you were saying like other coping mechanisms to deal with, they didn't deal with it. Like everybody else was just chill. And I swear it's like a firstborn obsessive perfectionist personality that is most susceptible Mm -hmm. to an eating disorder or probably like alcoholism or any kind of coping mechanism because you don't feel good enough. Like Mm -hmm. they didn't care. Like they didn't think about it. They were just Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is my body. And mine was obsession every single day and every single eating disorder you could have. I had, Mm, mm, yeah, you know, uh, perhaps their, maybe their childhood was a little bit different as well in terms of, um, having others around them to help with, uh, emotional and nervous system regulation. You know, if they, they grew up with you or they grew up with other people around, um, you know, 
in order to have healthy regulated nervous systems as a, as children, we need to often have support in regulating. And so, you know, maybe their experience was a little bit different in the ability to have support in regulation. Maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows, maybe their emotions were validated a little bit more. Maybe they, maybe they had friends or, um, you know, maybe they learned from your experiences and just had a little, they were a little bit more well-equipped to Mm -hmm. self-regulate when they became adults. And so turning towards unhealthy coping mechanisms wasn't necessary. Exactly. No, I think mm-hmm. that that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you, cause like, I obviously knew I had a problem, but I never, it wasn't like, I didn't acknowledge it. I never, I would never like the shame of it. I didn't want anybody to know. So at what point during your struggle, did you acknowledge it? Cause now, I mean, you've obviously come through it and help other people. How long you said a decade before you yeah. kind of came to grips with it. Like, can you talk about that? Um, well, I struggled for about a decade. I, I really, um, felt like I had a problem. I acknowledged that I had a problem whose, it was towards the end of my, um, my senior year in high school was when I was like, okay, something is wrong here. I don't know what it is, but I'm just like, I'm obviously not in a healthy frame of mind. And when I went to, and I, my, the way I was thinking at the time was when I get to college and I'm on my own and can control the food situation and, you know, I'm just independent, things will change and they'll get better. And, um, when I got into my freshman year of college, that's when, um, I really started to understand that I had a problem and I was able Mm -hmm. to start putting words to it as I was doing more research and realizing, okay, this could potentially be binge and emotional overeating. This could be disordered eating. Um, but when I was looking up the different criteria for what, uh, constituted a binge eater or emotion, you know, emotional compulsive overeater, I didn't necessarily fit the definitions to a T I definitely, um, you know, there was a ton of similarities. What is a binge eater, like a diagnosed binge eating disorder versus someone that just overeats sometimes? Yeah. The DSM five is a diagnostic manual that, um, kind of outlines how the criterion that, uh, medical and mental health professionals use to actually diagnose somebody as a binge eater. Um, and there's, there's a, a handful of different criterion that they look at to say, yes, this person, it, we're able to diagnose this person as a, you know, as having binge eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look those up. If you just Google, uh, DSM five, uh, diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder, there's a, a handful of things. It it's includes things like the number of calories consumed in a certain amount of time, the frequency of binges, the intensity of things, um, and a, and a list of other things. Well, I found myself not fully identifying with any of the diagnosable eating disorders, but at the time I didn't understand that the majority of people who struggled with disordered eating actually don't fit the specific criterion for diagnosing, uh, eating disorders. And so the majority of people who struggle fall in the undiagnosable ednos, the undiagnosable eating disorder category. Um, and, and those are individuals who most people who are struggling with disordered eating dip their toes in all of the different disordered eating tendencies. So Mm -hmm. there was periods where I was using compensatory behaviors, a form of bulimia, not necessarily making myself throw up, but taking laxatives over exercising things like that to try and compensate for what I ate. And then there was periods where I was heavily, heavily, heavily restricting there. I went through so many different phases. So I dip my toes. Yeah. and, And that's how most people are. I dip my toes in a variety of different struggles. And so when I was starting to look these things up, i started to feel like I was the outlier, like, man, I don't fit in any of these categories. So I must, you know, I must be the outlier that nothing works for. I felt like I was, okay, maybe I wasn't that sick, but maybe this was all just in my head, wow. but I, why did I feel so crazy around food? And so it was a really confusing time. Um, but I was really coming to grips with it, with it to answer your question when I was, um, in my early days in college. Do you find that when people fall into an eating disorder, it comes with like an identity change or like for me, my bulimia was the longest struggle for me. And it, I fell into that once I quit my soccer career 
And it's kind of like something you can control when everything else feels out of control. Is that a time where, or like the loss of a marriage or like, for me, it was my identity. Soccer was everything, as I mentioned, and I didn't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. So I fell into something that I could control because Mm -hmm. everything else was out of control. Is that a common theme? Sure. Yeah, for sure. People turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms to, uh, feel a sense of control. And, um, yeah, a lot of people turn to food as a, as a form of control, but ironically, when we start to control food, food controls us. And so that's what makes disordered eating so frustrating for those who suffer is because, uh, they're seeking control and what they get in exchange is a lack of control. Yes. Is that when you say like willpower makes things worse? I saw you post something about like, you think you're, you have all this willpower and you're in control, but that's actually like what you're saying now, it makes it worse. Well, willpower is, um, willpower is a finite resource and it's something that, you know, uh, that should be available, a resource available to us in, um, you know, very extreme situations where we need to draw on, on willpower for a survival mechanism. Um, but it, it's a, it's not something that we should be relying on every single day. Willpower is, is, um, yeah, it's finite. And so we, we need to learn how to work in sync with the brain so that we can set up these, uh, these habit pathways in our brain that put success on autopilot. And what's so beautiful to understand when you begin to understand the brain and how the body works is that, um, we were designed to be intuitive eaters and to listen to our body's hunger, fullness, and satiety cues. And, um, and intuitive eaters don't have a portion control problem, true intuitive eaters who, um, are in, in tune with their body and have uh, high levels of interceptive awareness. Um, and these are skills that can be developed. Um, we're born with them, but oftentimes we unlearn them and we get, uh, so, so kind of backwards with our relationship with food because of, you know, conditioning and diet culture and, you know, the patterns we, we subject ourselves to. Um, but it's, it's beautiful to know. We don't have to rely on willpower to eat balance. Just like you don't have to rely on willpower to, like go to the bathroom every day. It's a natural bodily function. Um, eating is a natural bodily necessary function and the body will regulate hunger, fullness, and satiety. Even if you don't feel like that now, if you have the thought that, you know, if I let myself eat whatever I want, whenever I want, and I listen to it, to my body, I'd be elbow deep in a tub of ice cream every night. That was my thought. Yeah. It's because there's a lot of built up, uh, a lot of built up internal pressure that needs to be released. And we have to retrain the brain back to how it was designed. Um, we have to, we have to weaken these neural pathways that are creating these very toxic self-sabotaging habit loops. And fortunately that's possible. Um, and what I always say to the women I work with in my program is it, uh, it seems complex, this process of mental retraining, um, because there's a lot to learn about it, but it's not rocket science at all. It's Mm -hmm. just a lot of things that you have to learn. And when you learn them, it makes sense. It's like, Oh, okay. I get it. But we're taught, we're taught so many different things and we're believing so many different things that have, that have us so turned around backwards that our reality, um, you know, our, we're, we're living in this very distorted reality. And when Mm -hmm. you start to learn, you know, these different tools and techniques and healing modalities to work in sync with the brain, it all really starts to click together. Um, and I think that's really encouraging. And that's where a lot of people get excited in the recovery journey because they're starting to finally see progress when, you know, they, they haven't in sometimes years, decades, because you know, what they're believing. Yes. It's, you have to unlearn how you used to be like, and it sounds so counterintuitive to say like you, you can learn to be intuitive cause you should just be intuitive. But mm-hmm. I ignored my hunger cues for so long, or it felt like a win. Like I'm hungry. And I noticed that I'm hungry, but I'm not going to eat. I'm going to, I was all about saving my calories for a meal time because I feel like women are taught it's calories in versus calories out. It's going to be less calories at the end of the day. So that's what you're supposed to do. The life of restriction. I would, my body would cue that I'm hungry. And I'd be like, oh yes, I'm not going to eat. And to unlearn that, like I worked so hard to chase this physical ideal that I never found with restriction and deprivation. And it was so much hard work. And I weighed 20 pounds more than I do now, just being mindful and 
it, it almost doesn't make sense. It's easy. Now I eat when I'm hungry. It sounds so, if you just pay attention and eat when you're hungry, stop when you're satisfied, not full. And honestly, like I never went to therapy for, or, um, treatment for my bulimia. And I'm almost, I would never eat to that fullness again. Cause I, I would never even want to trigger anything or any thoughts about that. So I eat until I'm satisfied. And now I eat foods that I enjoy with, that I would never order before. Like before it was just like bland salads, dressing on the side, no snacks, saving all my calories, all these things and miserable. And I look at trying to achieve this weight loss that I never saw. And I do hear myself. I know that I use fat phobic language and I don't want to, I never went to therapy, as I said. And for me, the way that I want to say that I met my physical ideal in a healthy way by honoring my hunger cues. Whereas for 20 years from 16 to 36, I ignored my hunger cues. I abused my body. I over-exercised and deprived myself and was unsatisfied because I didn't find my physical ideal. Now I found it being in tune with my body, intuitive, mindful, and taking care of my body instead of abusing it. But mm -hmm. it shouldn't be about a physical ideal. I'm, I get told a lot. I should just be happy at any size. And mm -hmm. I honestly like, need, like want that answer. Like if I'm not, I don't, I don't want to use fat phobic language. I don't want to mm -hmm. trigger anyone, but it's like, I have to share this message that if you just listen to your body and your body trusts you again, like your brain trusts you, you can maintain your weight and enjoy your life. Like, I guess that's my message. Genetics play a big role in a lot of different things. And we can't, uh, ignore that reality okay. and the reality that some individuals will, um, eat to their body's needs and not be at a, you know, societally accepted thin ideal. And yep. this is where the, the, uh, conversation has to evolve into, and, and address thin privilege, which is something that, um, I have as yep. a naturally thin, you know, white cis woman, I don't face the same discrimination and the same pressures and the same challenges just existing in society that those in large or marginalized bodies face. And so, right. um, it's, uh, you know, what I always say is it's a beautiful thing to be satisfied in your, you know, in your physical body and where your body is at. But if we place too much weight in, um, in our appearance, it really remains in this realm of body obsession and to heal body image is really to begin seeing that we are far more than a body. And when we think about our self-perception, I like to think of it in terms of a pie chart. And if you were to ask me 10 years ago, who Jesse was, what I would be thinking inside my head, 95% of my self-perception would be wrapped up in how I looked. Yep. That's how I viewed myself was in terms of an image, mm -hmm. in terms of an ornament, in terms of a decoration, in terms of an object to be viewed. And if it, looking at it now, the way that uh, self-perception pie chart has shifted is it's now broken up into so many different slices of who Jesse is, what she's overcome, what her passions are, uh, the things that she values and enjoys her important roles and titles. And maybe one to 2% of my self-perception is in the way that I look. And so, so when I'm existing in the world and I wake up and I have a bad body image day or life is really challenging and I don't get to be as active as I normally am and I gain weight or last year I was dealing with uh, perioral dermatitis. I had this rash on my face for almost eight months. When I'm having these challenging moments in my body image, it's affecting maybe one to 2% of my self-perception because I truly see more in myself and I value myself at so much more than a body. I no longer self-objectify and it becomes a really slippery slope for those who have found security in the way that they too much security in the way that they look, because right. the reality is our bodies will always be changing. We are always going to be aging. We do not stay this way. Right. This earth suit that our souls exist in is decaying. That's what's happening. We're all 
all headed one direction and that's death. And I know that sounds morbid, but you know, skin's getting thinner. We're going to get wrinkles. We're going to sag like things. That's just it. And, and accepting that that is a beautiful part of life to continue to age because not everybody gets the privilege to do so Mm -hmm. to continue to exist in a changing body because our bodies are just trying to take care of us, um, is, you know, is a, a really beautiful and freeing place to live. So is it okay to be satisfied and happy in the body that you have? Yeah. What a beautiful thing. But if we think about our own self-perception, being honest with ourselves and how much of that self-perception is wrapped up in how we look. And if it's too much, it's probably a, a vulnerability that we have because if it changes, it could impact our, um, our sense of self in a big way. I, I still have that noise. And I, mm-hmm. I wondered if, like, if I, because I didn't go to therapy for it, that I don't abuse my body anymore, but the mental stuff mm-hmm. is there. Like, mm-hmm. how did you get to a point where it's one that your physical looks are 1%? Like, is it through therapy that you can finally come to that place? Because we struggled with the same thing. Everything you said, I'm like, yep. And mm-hmm. for where you're at now, I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And that's so, you know, it's, it's beautiful to be fair with where you're at. And, and, um, for me, it was, I, I did lots of years of therapy, but therapy wasn't actually the place where I found healing in body image or in, uh, my struggles with food. I found a lot of support in, you know, in other ways through therapy, but it wasn't those two things for me. It was a lot of self-exploration, a lot of self-study, a lot of understanding the science around, uh, body image, the science around, uh, uh, disordered eating and, um, the neuroscience of behavior change. A lot of that's what was super supportive for me. Um, but for, to get to this point where the way that I look is really such a small fraction of my own self-perception was I began to analyze and assess my values and, um, priorities and really shifting my, to, to heal from binge and emotional overeating body image challenge challenges. uh, Something that we need to develop is the ability to manage our thought life and to be able to pivot when we are thinking too deeply on things that are self-sabotaging or things that are toxic, because you know, where our energy flows, this is where, what we, where our realities are created. And so when I'd catch myself getting too wrapped up in self-objectifying, which is viewing yourself as an object to be viewed rather than an experience to be had, I knew I needed to pivot mentally. And so I started to practice different mental techniques to have the self-awareness to check in with my thoughts and go, Oh damn, I was, I kind of went down a, a mental rabbit hole when I was getting dressed this morning, thinking about X, Y, and Z. And And I would start to catch myself faster and faster Mm -hmm. and pivot into, uh, uh, training my mind to focus on different aspects of who I was, what my values and priorities were my roles and important titles that meant something to me. Like I'm a loving and committed wife. I'm a driven and passionate entrepreneur, you know, the things that, that make me, me, and then, uh, the things that I've overcome and the things that I love and light me up. So I would shift into thinking about those things. And so the more, the more time that I spent interjecting thoughts into my head, marinating on things of things that I loved, who I was, what I was passionate about, what I overcame, the more value I started to give those things in my life and the less value and the less attention I gave my body image, negative body image is just body obsession. It's time spent focusing on our body. And so mm-hmm. I've collapsed the time I spend focusing on my body. I still enjoy putting my makeup on, doing my hair, getting dressed, but I don't let myself go down these mental rabbit holes anymore. If I'm not loving what I'm seeing in the mirror, I, there's not, there's no longer, do I just keep spinning and spinning and spinning? Cause I've learned mental techniques to pivot out of that and move on with my day. Yeah. It's like, I could be having a good day and it's like social media, you see mm-hmm. you're scrolling and you see something you're like, oh, like, God, she has three kids. Like, look at her. Mm-hmm. Don't look at those things. Like don't spend your time or don't follow those accounts that are triggering to you or that make you feel some type of way about your body or make you even think about your body. It's like, don't spend your time there. Cause yeah. that's what triggers me. I'm like, Oh my God, like, how is she so fit? And she has four kids. Like, why am I looking at that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't follow yeah. those accounts. Don't get off social media. Uh, you I was thinking too, like the scale, how long, like that number would determine if I had a good or bad day. It's like every morning weigh myself shitty day or a good day based on ounces that I saw on a scale. And mm-hmm. like getting rid of the scale was something like, I'm not going to spend time there. Cause I'm not going to weigh myself anymore. 
Mm -hmm. Like that's a trigger. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I think, um, we have to remind ourselves that the things that we're longing for when we're comparing ourselves are feelings. So you maybe look at a mom with three kids who's in fantastic shape and you're like, Oh, look at her. Well, maybe you're, maybe it's, it's not so much about her body. It's a feeling that we're, that we're constantly as humans, we're constantly chasing feelings. And so recognizing you have a need to feel a certain way. And there's a, it, there's other ways that we can meet that need. So for example, um, one of, one of the activities I take my clients through is, um, understanding the, the feelings that we're craving. What are the things that we're craving that are causing us to currently feel unsatisfied or compare ourselves? And how can we begin to meet those needs and realize that the, the body is not the barrier to accessing those feelings, to accessing those things that we're longing for. And we ought, we've told ourselves, and diet culture has told us that X, Y, and Z body gets us X, Y, and Z experiences, feelings, opportunities, status. And so, so we believe the body is the barrier, but when, when we start to recognize and train ourselves to understand the body is not the barrier, I can actually access this level of incredible intimacy, these opportunities, this, this status, this fulfillment it's like, wow, it's a lot closer than I thought. And I don't have to berate and judge the body because actually the body's not the barrier to that. But we believe that through, um, a lot of subconscious programming when, you know, we see, you know, beautiful models on a billboard advertising perfume, it's, you know, a sexual scene. And it's like, oh, in order to have that level of desire, you need to look like that. Mm -hmm. And so that's the subconscious message that we get. And so, and that's everywhere. And so we have to, you know, train ourselves to understand that that's not true and stop isolating in this, in that belief that until we look a certain way, only then can we have to be worthy like, of yeah. those things. You're that is like blowing my mind because my brand and everything, it's like, I sometimes don't feel like it's respected, I guess. And so it's mm-hmm. like, the feeling that I'm looking for is like, I guess, noticed, like what I've built, if I'm not feeling like that's being noticed and validated, Mm -hmm. that's the feeling that I'm looking for. But it's like, so if I put out a picture with my abs, then I'll get validation, but I'm trying to do it. Like, that's not, I can get that through. It's because I'm missing the validation from about something else. But Mm -hmm. so you try to get it through your physical like, well, the people like I got 50 likes on that picture. So I'm validated and I'm seen, but it's not about that. Like Mm -hmm. it's because I'm feeling that way internally about something else. I'm trying to get Mm -hmm. validation through my physical appearance. Mm -hmm. Totally. (laughs) And this is, you know, that's where we give each other attention. And so we have to understand, you know, it's always funny when, um, when I hear people calling others or myself attention seeking as if it's a bad thing, uh, we need attention. And, uh, as children, we seek attention unapologetically. And as Uh adults, we give children attention and, uh, we do so because we know they need it and it's healthy for them to receive attention. We don't magically don't need attention. Once we become adults, we need attention. We need validation. We need, we have a need to be seen. We have a need to feel respected. And a lot of us never develop the skills, the communication skills and the interpersonal relationship skills to get those needs met. And diet culture does a really good job of training us into this way of being that, you know, our body is that mechanism to get recognized, to be seen, to receive the support and validation. And it, and it becomes so toxic. And so as we learn how to communicate, we learn, um, greater interpersonal relationship skills, and we, uh, develop the sense of self-respect to seek, to get our needs met and to meet those inner needs or those needs of our inner child and not feel like those are silly or stupid or um, embarrassed that like you're or feeling like you shouldn't be seeking mm-hmm. att- like you, Oh no, no, no. Like, mm-hmm. like you did as a kid, like just own it. And <laughs> <laughs> don't feel like shame. Cause that's what you do as an adult. You're just like, totally. Oh, you shouldn't, I shouldn't put like, you almost have to be apologetic about it mm-hmm. as an adult. When as a kid, like I have a three and a half year old and a six year old, they don't, they want all the attention and they have no shame about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, yesterday I was having a, uh, a pretty challenging day. I called one of my employees crying and I told her I needed support. 
And, mm. and as an entrepreneur, you know, it's, we don't have, I don't have a superior saying good job or commending yeah. me. And I know that I need that support. Yeah. And so I have to ask for it. And a lot of us feel shame or embarrassment. And I just called her and I said, Hey, Carly, I, um, I am really struggling with X, Y, and Z. And I just started crying. I said, I need support. And oh. I, and you know, she was able to offer me that support, but so many of us don't do that. We feel no. so much resistance to doing that. And all the time I'm asking my friends and my family for support and in, in turn asking, Hey, how can I support you? In what ways do you need support and, and practicing seeing people for the things that they're, that they're working on the things that they're proud of the things that are challenging for them, even if it doesn't matter to me, even if it's something that I don't have any passion or interest in, but knowing that my friends and family and loved ones have needs to be seen and have needs to feel respect and have need a need to be validated in their own things. And so if we do that for one another, we create these really healthy dynamics and these really fulfilling relationships. And when our relationships are more fulfilled, which is a fundamental human need, we've, we realize again, the body is not the barrier to deep, rich fulfillment and connection. And then the need to try and manipulate the body starts to dissipate. It starts to release its grip on us because we're, we're getting all of our needs met. Yes. And sometimes it's just asking, how can I support you? You don't even have to do the thing that they need. Just feeling like if somebody came up to me, and was like, how can I support you? I would just feel so seen and like, wow, this person cares. It's not even about having to do it. Just asking, how can I support you? And I think like entrepreneurs or women, moms, Mm -hmm. you, you don't think to call and say you need support because you have to act like you have it all together. Like I'm the mom, like you can't, who are you going to call and say, you need support. You try to, you need it, but you don't say it Mm -hmm. because you want to give off this facade that you have it all together. And like, I don't know, I've got this. And I, I, speaking for myself, like I, I'm that way. Um, you touched on it a little bit and thinking more about how we went to feel. I listened to one of your podcasts recently and you said everything now that you consider, you ask yourself, how does it align with peace? Because peaceful is what you want to feel. And if it doesn't Mm -hmm. align with peace, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. How do I get to that point? I just say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. I I, people please. But -hmm. I thought that was so interesting. Like you think about things, how does this align with peace? And if it doesn't, it's not Mm -hmm. in your life. Yeah. You know, it's been, uh, it's been quite the evolution, quite the journey for me. I, um, I, uh, have, had so many cool experiences over the last number of years. And I have realized that the most fulfillment that I experience is when my life is in a state of peace or I'm in a state of peace. And so, so grinding and grinding and grinding or saying yes to everything and being stretched thin and exhausted in the name of, you know, doing something for somebody else or doing something that seems fun or exciting, but isn't a full body. Hell yes. Is pulling me away from opportunities that are a full body. Hell yes. And so I see time as so it's our one limited resource. We cannot create more of it. And life is short. And, and for me, I don't want to get to the end of my life and think, man, I spent my life busying myself with so many cool things that I missed the incredible, the excellent, the amazing, the, um, you know, the, the, the things that are just on another level. And I know that I have to be disciplined with where and how I give my time. And I want to stay in a state of peace. My stepdad, uh, Andy, who passed last year, he was all about, he was such a simple man and he had so much of life figured out and he never had much, but he was always content with what he had. And I always admired that so much in him. And when I was striving and working and, and grinding and grinding and grinding, he would look at me and he would say, you know, I commend you for your hard work, but when is it enough? Mm -hmm. Like when, and like thinking about that, I, I would think, you know, I don't know, because it was always, it was always, okay. Once I achieve this, once I get here, then Then. I'll be happy. And there was always something else. And so in, um, you know, in the last year, just reflecting on Andy and the impact that he had, uh, on my life, I'm like, man, like the man was just so present. Mm -hmm. And every time I've practiced 
presence and just being like the, the richest experiences that I have had in my life to date have been when I'm with friends sitting around a campfire and, or with family and deep in conversation or playing games with my family, just really simple experiences that don't cost money. They don't, you know, there's not, you know, fame and recognition and anything involved. It's just so simple. Those have been my richest experiences. And, and they, they, uh, in order for me to be able to have time for those, I have to be super disciplined with how I spend my time. And so this, I just committed this last year that I, and I I've gone through a lot of hardship in the last two years. And I just decided that, you know what, more than anything, the feeling that I'm chasing is, is peace and presence, because I think that's where the most fulfillment I ever received comes from. And so earlier this year, I got a book opportunity, co-authoring a book and it was so exciting. And in my spirit, it just, I couldn't get it to align with peace because of the amount how much, how involved it was going to be during this year of my life. And it was such a hard thing for me to grapple with because on paper, it looked like such an incredible opportunity, but there was just this energetic feeling of this is going to stretch you thin and, and it's not going to align with peace and you've committed to this. And so in releasing that opportunity, I've felt, I've just felt so much freedom. That's amazing. Like who would pass it up? Because like another mm-hmm. thing to put on the resume, look at this. Now I'm an author mm-hmm. and you analyzed it and we're like, no, it's not serving me this year. And it's not going to mm-hmm. bring me peace like that. I would have taken it and been like, hell yes. And then struggled and suffered and missed moments with my kids because deadlines. So really taking the time to analyze things and not just saying yes, because it's going to grow your brand. I love that. Did you find mm-hmm. the pandemic, like with the people that you coach, like, was that just did you have to start all over? Like, how did you manage that time, especially like with your clients? Cause I think if I were still in my eating disorder mess and I had to have been isolated and cause that's where your secrets thrive in isolation and we couldn't go anywhere. Did you see like a lot of setbacks during that time? Uh, there, I think a lot of people struggled. Yes. A lot of people struggling a lot more during the pandemic for so, so many different reasons, fear of the, you know, collective trauma, And yeah, it was very isolating. And also I think it, uh, forced a lot of people to look within and assess and analyze. Uh, A lot of people had to slow down. They weren't able to travel and to do all the things that they normally do. And so it created, it forced a lot of introspection. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Um, and it's also really challenging because it forces us to look at the things we've been ignoring and numbing out. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was, there was definitely a lot of, uh, new challenges that my clients had to navigate going through the pandemic and what that meant for their routine being shaken up and how that was impacting their relationship with food. So yeah, there was a lot of new challenges for individuals struggling with eating and, and body image disorders, a lot of isolation. And so we had to come up with a lot of creative ways to meet the needs that we couldn't normally meet in certain ways. Right. And your food freedom program, if someone's like inspired, like how exactly Mm -hmm. does that work? Yeah. It's a four month online program and it's a combination of educational material. So you get in and you start to understand the neuroscience of behavior change. You start to learn tools, techniques, healing modalities, emotional regulation techniques, nervous system regulation techniques that are going to help you retrain how your brain relates to and functions with food so that you no longer even feel the urge or the impulse to binge or emotionally overeat because that's true food freedom. That's true healing, not this white knuckling it, um, yeah. you know, energy that's, that's not healing. And so, um, it's, it's a combination of the educational component and then live coaching, live group coaching. So I've worked with clients now for the last four years and I haven't moved away from the coaching element. I'm very connected with our clients and I do so because I'm constantly iterating and testing different techniques and trainings and healing modalities to see their effectiveness, because my goal is to help clients collapse their time from point A to point Z as fast as as they possibly can. So it doesn't take them years and years and years to heal. Really healing can happen. Um, can it, it, it's, it's never as fast as we want, um, Mm -hmm. but it can happen uh, a lot faster than years and years and years, most certainly. So 
Um, yeah, so it includes a coaching element and then it includes a community element where you get connected with other individuals who are going through this very same process. We have women that we work with from all over the world and it's really, really exciting because we all get to learn from, uh, from one another. And the course has been going strong for, uh, going on four years this June. And, uh, yeah, it's just been such a blessing to get to work with now over 13. We might even be up to 1400 women now who have successfully wow. graduated the course. Yeah. So it's been, it's been really powerful in the last four years and it's been cool to see the program's reputation grow and just reach so many different individuals and to see the impact has been truly something so healing for me to, to look at my pain and all the challenges that I went through and see now such an incredible purpose in that. And I remember when I was deep in my disordered eating, I remember having this conversation with myself that I would never ever tell anybody I struggled with this because I was so embarrassed and so uh, ashamed of it. And, you know, now millions and millions of people know, you know, what I've gone through in great detail. And it's a joy for me to share it because I see the impact that it has. Yes. You made your pain, your purpose. Mm -hmm, Like that's exactly why I wrote my book. Like if you told me I'm going to be a, like a wellness, per, like talking wellness and helping women when I was like hunched over a toilet, like mm-hmm. 10 years out of my life, like I never saw this coming, but it's like exactly what I know that I'm supposed to do. And I think you've kept with your coaching because it brings you that presence and it brings you peace and you like light up when you talk about it. So it's like, mm-hmm. you're putting your time into something mm-hmm. that gives you presence and peace. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you um, if they're looking to sign up? Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, well, obviously I hang out on, uh, the dear body podcast. And yeah. so I always encourage, um, encourage anybody who's interested in just maybe even beginning to look at their relationship with food, to start listening to the podcast. I think you'll learn a lot about, uh, the process of healing and what it looks like and where you're at in your own journey. Um, but if you feel ready to dive in and get more information around the food freedom online program, you can go to www foodfreedomonlineprogram.com. And there's all the details there. You can read it over and then book a a free strategy call with one of my team members to see if it might be a good fit for you and talk with them. They'll walk you through kind of what's included, ask you some questions to see if it would be a good fit for you. We're certainly not a good fit for everyone. Um, but there are, uh, uh, you know, a large number of individuals that we can help with our tools and techniques. And so if you're looking for more information, definitely, uh, check us out. But if you're not in a place where you're, ready to take those next steps. My encouragement is always just to, to challenge your mind, to open up a little bit and to, um, uh, maybe entertain the idea that you don't know what you don't know. And mm-hmm. maybe you aren't an outlier that nothing ever works for because you've tried everything. Maybe there's, um, there's holistic approaches out there that combine a variety of tools and techniques that could be incredibly effective. And if you just start learning, you know, change happens over time. And a lot of people just need to know that it's okay to not be fully ready. You can do things scared and you can do things on your own timeline. Um, but just start learning because the time is short. Our life is short and we shouldn't spend you know, we don't need to spend another day stuck in these all consuming self-consumed struggles with food and body image. There's just so much freedom available to you. Yeah. And we've lost so much of our life to that already. Mm -hmm. Like you and I, like I can never go back to that. Like I'll never get that time back. Mm -hmm. You've even just given me the strategy. I may not know exactly where to pivot my thought now, but Mm -hmm. like just being in the moment, like, nope. And like catching it, (laughs) like social media, the scale, like find your triggers, even if, you know, you could take your course and you'll show them how to come out of it. But just that strategy of being aware of when you're being triggered and don't do that right now. Don't do that anymore. Don't spend your time there. I love Mm -hmm. it. Totally. Yeah. Uh, to kind of continue off of that, to give you a little strategy when you are struggling, (laughs) um, with, uh, with those toxic thoughts, Mm -hmm. you're getting self-consumed in self-objectifying thoughts. Um, there's, uh, nine different affirmations you can repeat to yourself that will help you pivot. A lot of times we have these thoughts and we're like, okay, don't think that, don't think that, don't think that, but that's like telling someone, Hey, don't think about a purple unicorn, Mm -hmm. whatever you do. Don't let a purple unicorn 
get, you know, come into your head. And it's and that's like, all you see, that's all you think about right now. Mm-hmm. So instead you have to pivot. You have to have something that you switch to. We don't break habits. That's not the science of, of, uh, habit change. You replace a habit. And so instead it's like, okay, I'm not going to focus on this. Instead, I'm going to focus on this. And we have to be very clear about where we're pivoting. And so nine different affirmations that can be really supportive. If you're struggling with body image, I always say the best affirmations for body image, interrupting body image thoughts are the ones that have nothing to do with body image. When we're going from, I don't like my body to, okay, I like my eyes, my stomach carried children. We're still focusing on our bodies. Start with I am, and then insert your important roles and titles. What, what roles and titles do you play in this life? That means something to you. You know, maybe for you, Aaron, it's, I am a, um, you know, I'm a loving and dedicated mother. And, and for me, it's, I'm a committed and driven entrepreneur. That's an important role to me. Mm-hmm. I am, um, a, a, a loving wife. I am a daughter. I am a friend. Like what, what roles and titles mean something to you insert those come up with three. And then the next three affirmations, I love, or I am passionate about what, what makes you tick, what things bring you life and bring you excitement. Remind yourself of that. And they can be small things. They don't have to be deeply profound things. Just remembering what gives you joy in this life. Maybe you love a clean house. Maybe you love decorating. Maybe you (laughs) love going on hikes in the mountains. Maybe you just love having a cup of coffee and watching the sunrise before your kids get up. And that's just something that's like, you just love that. Remind yourself three things that you love or are passionate about. And then the last three affirmations start with, I have overcome, remind yourself who the heck you are and all the things that you have overcome in this life. And I feel like in in doing so, it gives us a sense of empowerment. Yeah, I have overcome all of these things. I've overcome 100% of my hardest days. I have overcome this, this, and this. And uh, those nine affirmations can be uh, pretty powerful in getting us off of the toxic, uh, you know, uh, self-objectifying body image thoughts and into things that help us see the value in our life beyond our body. Thank you so much for listening to the Squats and Margaritas podcast. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And I'll see you next week for a brand new episode of Squats and Margaritas. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.